You're listening to Raising Curious Learners, a podcast from Britannica for Parents, where we talk to experts and discuss issues and trends in child development, education, and parenting. Welcome back to Raising Curious Learners. I'm Elizabeth Romanski, and my co-host, as usual, is Anne Gatzikowski. Our podcast is called Raising Curious Learners because at Britannica for Parents, we believe that nurturing a lifelong love of learning is one of the most important things that parents, teachers, and caregivers can do for children. You know, it's hard to think of any skill that's more essential to learning than reading. Becoming a confident and fluent reader is one of the most important educational milestones for children. Exactly, and that's why we're focusing on reading today in our podcast. We've invited Kate Ferriante from Redwood Literacy to talk about some of the challenges that children might experience as they learn to read and how parents and caregivers can support their young readers. Welcome to our podcast, Kate. Thanks so much, guys. I'm really excited to be here. We're so happy to have you. So tell us about Redwood Literacy and about your work with children and families. Yes, So Redwood Literacy was born out of a desire to see structured literacy intervention, which I'll talk about a little bit later on, um, accessible to students in the city of Chicago, because that's where we're located, regardless of socioeconomic demographics. So uh, historically, structured literacy intervention has been limited to communities of affluence just because of how expensive it is to find a practitioner who's certified to do this. And basically, the crux of our model was, what if we, instead of doing individual intervention, we grouped kids strategically, and that would bring the cost down for all families involved. So we launched with the summer camp. We had about 30 kids attend from all over the city in the summer of 2018. Um, And then within a few months, 10 of those families approached us and said, hey, would you start a school? Because there's nothing like this in the city that's accessible. Um, And we've seen already what an amazing impact structured literacy intervention has had for our children. Um, We now have two locations, um, one on the north side of the city, one on the west side of the City, and we have a couple community partners where we go and provide services for free. Um, and then we also do a lot of work in schools in the city, um, training teachers in the program that we use all at, at no cost to them because our, our mission is to try to get this to as many kids who need it, again, regardless of where they're located in the city and regardless of, of, of what resources they have available to them. So you're helping children who are struggling readers, and some of them have been diagnosed with dyslexia and some of them have not. So what, what does that look like when you say struggling readers? What are they experiencing in school and at home? So I'll start with kind of like what dyslexia looks like specifically, and then maybe talk about what are some of the other struggles. So dyslexia is a, I like to call, well, it's not, they're not my words, but Dr. Marianne Wolf, she refers to dyslexia kind of as a glitch in the system, which I think is a really nice way to define it. I also always tell families, I don't view dyslexia as a learning disability. I view it as a learning difference. You know, dyslexia is not linked to IQ or intelligence. There's nothing you can't do if you have dyslexia. It's just that you really, your brain works a different way and you need a different type of instruction to be successful. So going back to that glitch, none of us are born with the ability to read. It is not a natural process. The human brain has not evolved yet to make the reading process natural because reading is still a pretty new invention if you look at the history of mankind. Unlike speech, speech is a very natural process, but reading is not. So when when individuals start the process of learning how to read, for about 60% of of kids, it's a pretty automatic connection. That circuit in the brain that's not natural connects pretty quickly and it's a pretty automatic process regardless of what type of instruction they get. Then about an additional 20% 
as long as they're given like some instruction, um, they, they're able to make that connection. But then that last 20% of learners, the 20% that have dyslexia, it is so hard for that circuit to connect in the brain. And that's when that glitch happens. The, the series of skills that you need when you're, when you're reading, they're really struggling to connect. And so what, what happens with structured literacy intervention, which is what dyslexic brains need to learn how to read proficiently, is you do really explicit, specific research-based activities and strategies and lots of direct instruction to help that circuit connect. So you're actually rewiring the brain through this intervention and creating this kind of a seamless circuit of skills. So it isn't, you know, neurobiological. There's some studies that show that there is a tendency for it to be genetic. So if you have a dyslexic parent, there's more likelihood that there will be dyslexic children in the family. Not always, not necessarily, but there is some connection there. And so what it looks like is just a real struggle with learning how to read. A dyslexic brain usually has really amazing skills thinking in three-dimensional um, imaging. NASA, of many of their engineers are dyslexic. They actively recruit dyslexic brains because they're so good at that kind of work. Dyslexic brains are so good at thinking outside the box. I like to say they're really good at cheating the system. Like, uh, I'm going to find a better way to do this, which is an amazing skill when you get to professional life. We need people who are so good at problem solving, creatively thinking outside the box. Oftentimes, individuals with dyslexia have really amazing people skills because they've had to learn how to cope in our educational institutions, which are so heavily rely on reading and not only reading, but kind of quick access to reading. So they get really good at reading people and, and learning how to get people to help them with things. So I see really strong social emotional skills oftentimes in my dyslexic students. They're often very charismatic. They often, you know, they're kind of constantly looking for coping mechanisms to help them kind of survive school because school is really hard for them because everything we do in school relies on being a proficient reader. Some of the things that are really hard for a dyslexic brain is two-dimensional. So it's that symbol recognition, which is reading, right? We, we, we connect A says A, right? So that looking at a two-dimensional symbol and recalling what sound that makes, that that can be really tricky and really exhausting for a dyslexic brain. It's Again, it's not that they can't do it. They can do it, but it requires way more energy and way more support for them to get those skills. Also, a language-based learning difference. So it's so connected to speech. You know, lots of new research is coming out now and more and more about the different subtypes of dyslexia. But in general, usually how it appears either in one or multiple of these ways is either in like a phonological disconnect. So that sound to symbol understanding of looking at a symbol and recognizing what sound it makes, that phonemic awareness, to in kind of rapid automatic naming. So oftentimes for dyslexic brains, it's really hard to read things quickly or even to interpret symbols quickly or even to retrieve words quickly. Like they might struggle with remembering somebody's name. Oftentimes when I'm working with individuals with dyslexia, they're like, yeah, you know when. Um, and they're like, you can tell they're searching for the right word. They know the word, but it's like they're digging in their brain trying to find it and it's just hard to like retrieve it automatically. So the phonological, the phonics, the phonemic awareness, then the rapid automatic naming, um, and then the semantics. So sometimes it will show itself in a real struggle with connecting. What are these symbols? What's the meaning behind these symbols? What is this string of symbols telling me? And sometimes it appears in all three of those areas. Sometimes it's just one. So again, it, there's a lot of misconceptions about it because it, it never shows up the same way in an individual. There are so many factors. There's also quite a bit of research that shows that there's some connection, you know, free 
frequently, not always, but frequently you'll have an overlap of like ADHD in addition to dyslexia. So again, sometimes some of those ADHD struggles and characteristics will be confused for dyslexic. So it's, I mean, there are lots of patterns and trends, um, but it really shows up differently in, in different learners. Some of the common misconceptions with dyslexia too, I mean, you probably have heard like, oh, dyslexia is just when you like read things backwards. Mm-hmm. That's kind of, I think, one of the go-to like quick definitions, or sometimes that's what's portrayed in media is just that the letters are swimming all over the screen or all over the page. when you talk to individuals with dyslexia, it's not like, it does kind of feel like that, I think sometimes, but that's not what's actually happening. So I think if we rely on that as a definition, we're really missing the heart of the issue. Now, there are other reading challenges that students can have that aren't dyslexia. You you can have students who can decode the words just fine, but just really struggle with making meaning of them, just like just a comprehension struggle that's not necessarily connected to this glitch in in that circuit in the brain. But in my experience, this the structured literacy intervention, which is the method that we use at Redwood and the method that is encouraged for individuals with dyslexia, really benefits all students. One of the pushes in the science of reading world is that we need to embrace this idea because it helps all students and harms none. If we just teach reading to those 60% of students that kind of get it in whatever way we give it to them, we're always excluding that 20 to 40% who need more explicit instruction. So really leaning into how can we deliver instruction that's going to benefit all students regardless if they have dyslexia or not. So is this something that would show up when the children are very young and they're just starting to learn to read or would it be later on when they're becoming, you know, more deeper fluent readers? Oh, so glad you asked that question. (laughs) Yes, we can tell very early on. And again, that's a misconception that, you know, historically sometimes we said, oh, we can't tell in young children because everybody picks up things at different times and at different rates. But there are a lot of signposts that we can pay attention to, you know, very early on. Yale's Center for Dyslexia and Creativity has some really amazing checklists that we always encourage parents to check out. Kind of, these are the things that you should be looking for, even in your four-year that will give you some indication. Of course, there is different rates. Children develop at different rates, but it's it's good to be aware of some of the things to look for because the earlier you identify these struggles, you save your child so much time and energy because if they get that intervention right from the beginning, the earlier you catch it, the faster the process is. So, you know, we've had students who have come in in kindergarten and graduated from our program even in like their first grade year versus if we wait to identify students until they're in third grade or until they're in sixth grade, that process is just going to be a lot longer because you're you're having to kind of undo a lot of poor instruction or not even poor instruction, but the wrong kind of instruction and unhelpful habits and teach them a whole new way of thinking about it. So I really encourage parents to check out some of those resources. We have resources on our website. We have some checklists that we provide, but it's never too early to start looking for some of these things. Would it be safe to say that what you're describing is a different way of learning to read that is not necessarily a problem with reading, but it means that these children are learning to read in ways that are different than the ways that are taught typically in school? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. You know, dyslexia is how your brain is wired. It's never going to go away, right? Dyslexia isn't a problem that you like cure or fix and then it's gone. It's the way that your brain is wired. And so you'll 
always have a tendency for some of those strengths I talked about, and you'll always have a tendency for some of those uh, struggles, but you can do it. You can learn how to read proficiently. You can learn how to write proficiently. You just need a different type of instruction than what is historically and traditionally been offered. I am curious because I know that the resources you gave are, are great. And at the same time, some of those signposts are not going to be um, necessarily foolproof. But could you give just like three examples of what some of those are, especially because I'm fascinated at the fact that like for little kids, you can identify some of that early. So I'm just curious then of what are those signposts? Yeah, for sure. So a couple of examples that come to mind are one pretty basic one is a child's phonemic awareness, their ability to identify the parts in what they hear. So phonemic awareness is purely auditory. It's you're not looking at anything, right? So it's just your ability to hear the different chunks of sound in a word. So for example, if I say, I went for a walk with my dog, and I ask my my four-year-old daughter, how many words are in that sentence? I actually probably, that's a little bit long. I'd probably start with a shorter one. Like, I like drinking water. How many words are in that sentence? Or, okay, your name, my daughter's name is Imogene. Your name is Imogene. How many sounds can we find in Imogene? Again, that's a hard example because it's not very phonetic. Or even like taking, you know, words that your child is very familiar with, your dog. How many sounds are in the word dog? Kind of doing some rhyming games. So often children with dyslexia will have a really hard time with rhyming. And that's something that young children frequently work on with nursery rhymes and songs. If you kind of start to notice that maybe your child is struggling with that, asking them like, what's a word that rhymes with pink? You know, what's a word that rhymes with cat? And if they really struggle to do that, that could be a signpost that potentially that that phonemic awareness is not where we need it to be. So how many words in a sentence? How many sounds in a word? That's one. Another one that comes to mind, you know, some kids pick up the alphabet really quickly and some kids really struggle with the alphabet because again, it's that sound symbol understanding. So to be able to look at a symbol, you know, a symbol of an A, if you look at an A, there's nothing about that symbol that reminds you that it's A versus if you look at a symbol of a cat, you're like, oh, it's a cat because it looks like a cat, right? There's meaning with that symbol. But letters and numbers, same with numbers, right? The number two, there's nothing about the number two that reminds you that it represents the quantity two, except that you just have to memorize it. You have to get that sound symbol connection intact. So if you sense that your child is struggling with learning their letters or learning numbers or recognizing like a stop sign. You know, that's a, that's a symbol that we see frequently. So if your child doesn't pick up, like that means stop. You know, every time we come to a stop sign, we stop. Those kinds of things, um, that sound symbol knowledge, that's definitely a, a red flag to be aware of. And then that word retrieval as well. So like my day was, was was good versus like, you know that they know more exciting, robust words than good. You know, when they're just talking, they might be like, it was amazing. Or my friend said something incredible, but then you see them go, not a, not a stutter, but maybe like a pause and you can tell they're searching for the right word and they can't find it. That would also be something that I would definitely flag and say, this might be an indication of that, you know, rapid automatic naming struggle. Those are a couple examples that come to mind. Mm-hmm. What about a child who's learning to read and they memorize the story. They're kind of performing the reading of the story. That's normal, right? But at what point would you say, okay, this is a concern that they haven't gone farther than that? Yes. Sitting down and and reading, this is a podcast, so I'm doing air quotes, (laughs) sitting down and and reading, you know, kids do that all the time and it's adorable and it's beautiful. It's showing their love of books and stories. So they sit down and they read their favorite book by saying the lines, but you know they haven't memorized. That's awesome. Let them do that. Encourage them to do that. But that's 
that's not reading in my professional opinion. That's memorizing. That's remembering the story, remembering the words that your parent or caretaker or, you know, our grandparent or auntie has read to you. So definitely, if you start seeing your child guess a lot at words, so if you, especially once they start getting to second, third grade, a lot of dyslexic students, like I said, many dyslexic students are exceptionally intelligent and they're really good at cheating the system and tricking everybody around them, you know, including parents, including some of the best teachers. Like it's hard, especially if you don't have this, this area of expertise, which are teacher preparation programs across the nation don't do a great job of teaching this. So you could have an amazing teacher who thinks that they're sitting down and they're reading the words, especially when they're in a picture book and you have context clues and you have things that you can pull from to figure this out. If they're exchanging like the little words like the and a and of for other words, that's a signpost like, oh, they're not actually reading that word. They're filling in with words that make sense. Or if they come to the word dog and they say dig because they think that makes more sense in the sentence, they're looking at that first sound and then they're just kind of guessing or they're looking at the last sound or the length of the word. So if children frequently mistake words that look similar to other words, then that would be a signpost. One of my favorite examples is I remember when I first started working with students with dyslexia, you know, the word God frequently appears in text with a capital G, right? Especially in the American culture. And I remember we were reading it and they read God with a capital G, no problem. And then I showed them God with a lowercase g and they had no idea what the word said. Mm. And I was like, wow, this is fascinating that kind of memorize this chunk then that shape. And because you're really smart and you were able to do that, but you're actually not decoding. And what happens is that if they're kind of reading through memorization techniques, kind of works until like second, third grade because the number of words you're exposed to is so limited and frequently text is combined with pictures. And so again, if you are smart, which most dyslexics are exceptionally smart, they're good at matching and, and putting things together. After third grade, a lot of that support goes away. And now the number of words you're exposed to can't keep up with the memorization tactic and you can't keep up with the picture tactic and the context clues. So that's when really a lot of kids come to us like in third, fourth grade because those coping mechanisms are starting to break down and it's starting to become clear that they actually don't have the decoding skills they need to truly be able to read the text. Yeah, it's all extremely fascinating. And you said something about support, which really makes me think about this past year because there are a lot of components relied on support. And it's, you know, you can't just kind of be like, learn to read better, you know, and so you need additional help. So with this past year, how have you seen not only your individual company, but maybe colleagues who are in the same industry, like how has the support been there for kids during the pandemic? And have you seen kids regress in their learning? Have you seen them thrive? Yeah. How has this past year been? Oh, man. It's been so difficult for everybody and every student who's been, you know, not able to attend in-person learning and just the trauma of a pandemic and the way it affects people on so many levels. I think, you know, one thing is we have been inundated with requests this year. The rate of people reaching out to us for help because parents now for the first time maybe are sitting next to their children as they try to do online school and they're seeing for the first time like, wait, I don't think my kid knows how to read and I didn't know this. We're, I mean, we are getting inundated with requests for help. That's one interesting thing that's happened. I mean, it's been hard for everybody and for lots of different demographics of students for different reasons. But I think for dyslexic learners, it's been really challenging because so text-based, right? You're you're missing out on that in-person connection that who can like read your face, like, oh, I can read your face as, as a teacher. I can see you're not getting this. I can come offer you some support. I can give you some, you know, multi-sensory support and multi-sensory is so crucial for the dyslexic brain. The more sensory 
chances you can get involved in their learning, the more successful they are, which again is for most students, but it's, it's especially important for dyslexic brains. So on a two-dimensional screen, it's so hard to do that multi-sensory instruction and everything is text-based. You're required to read all the directions for what you're even supposed to do for the day. So it's been really challenging. Again, not always, but I see a, a, a pretty strong trend that for individuals with dyslexia, often it's it's matched with a slower processing sometimes. So even just the amount of like having to keep track of all the different emails and the different, you know, keeping a Google Drive and knowing where to access this piece of information and this piece of information. So I think it's been really challenging for individuals who are already significantly behind grade level in their literacy skills now to have lost out on a really a full year now of in-person instruction for the majority of them. I think it, you know, it's, it's going to be extra difficult to now catch them up, you know, even more so when they were already starting out behind from where they need to be. And I'm thinking about beginning readers. Is there a difference between learning to read on a screen and learning to read on a piece of paper? Yeah, I mean, I have found in my work that most of my students struggle more on a screen. It's not across the board always, but I think, again, that multi-sensory component with text, it's, it's still two-dimensional, but you like pick it up. There's a little bit more of that three-dimensional element. You know, you turn the pages. It's just less overwhelming, whereas it's on a screen and you just kind of scroll endlessly. For some students, like, again, just navigating on a computer screen is pretty tricky. I think it's extra challenging. It requires even more energy for individuals with dyslexia to, to navigate text digitally. And when you talk about multi-sensory learning, that reminds me of tools like a Montessori sand tray where children are writing in the sand. Do you do anything like that with your students? Yes. It's a really powerful combination of multi-sensory activities partnered with very explicit direct instruction. So if we just have that multi-sensory component, but without the direct instruction, I don't see students with dyslexia being successful. Or if we just have the direct instruction without that multi-sensory component, I see some success, but it's much slower and much more labor intensive. So I would say in my experience, the most powerful combination has been a very clear scope and sequence of skills that is based on mastery. So I'm going to teach you one phonics skill. I'm going to teach you what a closed syllable is. Closed syllables make up 40% of the English language. So I'm going to start there because that gets you a lot of words right there. So if I teach you how to decode a closed syllable, that requires really explicit instruction. Speaking of multisensory, we have students tap out the individual sounds in a word or bang out the individual syllables in a word. So that, that piece, that direct instruction, Instruction, and then combined with like the tapping or we, you know, we definitely do uh, have students write in sand or write on sandpaper, especially for words like irregular words that don't follow those phonics rules as much. So for example, the word the, you can't tap out the word the, it doesn't follow a phonics rule that we teach students. So the, it's a high frequency word. It appears all the time. So you need to know it automatically. But those might be words that I do like, we're going to write the in shaving cream and we're going to do sky writing with the. And we're going to write it on sandpaper so to help you get that tactile connection as you try to memorize this two-dimensional word. Okay, so it's time for a quick break, but don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. 
Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hi, everyone. Did you know that Britannica designed a safe and trusted site that allows kids to be kids? On Britannica Kids, you'll find exciting educational content for all age groups. Go to kids.britannica.com kids30 to get 30% off your subscription today. Hi, everyone. This episode is brought to you by Britannica Premium. With the world and the news around us changing by the second, reliable information is more important than ever. Consider supporting our quest for the truth with a Britannica Premium membership and gain access to over 1 million pages of fact-checked content, digitized collections of our first edition, and more. Go to Britannica.com premium30 to get 30% off your subscription today. Well, Kate, I'm just curious, you know, I know that this is what you do. So obviously you're very well versed in it, but there's so much passion and you're just so eloquent in how you talk about this. So I'm really curious if you're willing to share, like, how did you decide on this as a path for your career and specifically dyslexia? Oh, you wish you wouldn't have asked me that question because I'll talk too long about it. <laughs> yeah, so I um, I am actually a high school dropout, which I think is a cool part of my story. I'm a high school dropout, and I went to community college and then transferred to a four-year university for the last two years of my degree and graduated as a learning behavior specialist. Um, and I taught for one year downstate in central Illinois, but then my partner got placed in Teach for America. So we both moved up to Chicago and got placed. Our classrooms were right next to each other. It was very cheesy Mr. and Mrs. Ferriante. <laughs> and I got to my first CPS classroom and I had 18 students that were in my self-contained class who were in there for all sorts of different reasons. Basically, anybody who didn't fit in any other class came to my class. There was sixth, seventh, and eighth graders and they were all like really smart, but none of them could decode. And I was just completely befuddled. I was like, wait, you're really smart. It's not like you can't learn this. It's not like you cognitively are not able to learn this. I mean, you're talking sixth, seventh, and eighth graders that don't know how to decode the word dog, cat, boy. And I was just like, what? My mind was blown. So I was like using some tools that I had been given in my undergrad and nothing was working. And so my mom actually had heard about the Wilson reading system and I was talking to her about it. She's like, have you, you know, have you heard about this? I was like, oh yeah. And so I went to a training and started using it very poorly because I, I didn't yet know really what I was doing. But I started using this curriculum in my classroom. And within a few months, I had these sixth, seventh, and eighth graders who had gone their whole educational careers without being able to decode and they were decoding these words and I was just like this is this is what I need to do it just became so clear to me so I got certified in Wilson um, as a dyslexia practitioner and, and, and started using it well actually Redwood is dedicated to one of my students his name was Kevin and he was one of the eighth graders in my very first CPS classroom and uh, he he was one of the students that I first used Wilson with and I saw him make about two years of reading growth in one semester really by the time I started using Wilson um, super Super smart kid who had just never been given the right tools. And the summer right after his eighth grade graduation, he was killed um, as a victim of gun violence here in Chicago. And so that was really a turning point for me. I think I just was like, kids need this in first grade. Like every kid should have access to this in first grade so that we do not get to the point where we have middle schoolers who are very smart and 
not able to decode because if you can't decode by eighth grade, that has had a huge impact on your self-worth, your view of yourself, your view of your future. I mean, if you're in eighth grade and you can't read yet, you don't think you're smart. You don't think you have options. Mm -hmm. It's so limiting. So that was a real turning point for me. I used Wilson in my high school classroom. I taught with the Noble Charter Network on the west side of Chicago before stepping out of the classroom. When I was doing my private practice, I was working with clients who could afford to pay me $100 to $150 an hour. And I loved it. I loved teaching any kid how to read. It was just becoming so clear to me. This is an equity issue. Every child has the right to have access to the right kind of instruction so they can learn how to read. Because literacy opens doors. Literacy helps you have access to choices in life. Literacy empowers democracy. Literacy equips you to become fully alive and to pursue what you want to do in the world. If you can't read, you are just, you feel so limited. I'm teaching a class this year on the west side of Chicago at the Lawndale Christian Legal Center. So I'm working with 10 individuals. They're all between the ages of 16 and 27. And they have all either previously been incarcerated or currently on house arrest or probation. And I was talking to them recently. They've already made huge growth. We, we screened them at the beginning of the year. They're below the 20th percentile. Their literacy score is already making so much growth. And I was having a conversation with them recently. And they're like, we don't know why. Like, we don't know why we didn't get this. If someone would have taught me how to read like this, I could have learned how to read. Look, I'm doing it now. Why did I have to wait until I was 27 to learn how to read just because I didn't have access to the right kind of instruction? Mm-hmm. So that's that's why I'm passionate about it. <laughs> wow. It's amazing. And I think you hit on something interesting too about how you said that they're kind of good at tricking the system. So it's not as a parent. However, as someone who is dyslexic, I'm sure it's very apparent and self-isolating because you, you know, you're trying your hardest to show that maybe you are at the level that everyone assumes or everyone expects, especially if you're in eighth grade, you don't want to, you know, get bullied by your peers. And so you're mentally exhausted, but then also there is that awareness of like what you really are struggling with and afraid to like share it. So yeah, it's just, there's so much to it. And I, I can't even imagine because I, you know, I'm not dyslexic and I love to read and that's kind of my escape. So to not be able to read as early as I did, I know I'm an individual, but I, I would have been a mess. Like it would have been horrible. You know, you're chronically misunderstood. You're chronically having to prove your intelligence, which is exhausting. You know, you're smart, like dyslexic individuals know they're smart, but then they, they're like, everyone else seems to be able to do this. No problem. I I don't know what even the alphabet is. Um, I've worked with college students who weren't diagnosed until college. They got to university and all their coping mechanisms broke down and they had emotional breakdowns because they're like, I've been working so hard. I'm so smart. I'm not able to be successful here because I don't have these basic skills. And I, I love what you said too about reading. You know, think about how reading expands our tolerance. Reading expands our understanding of the world. And so if you're deprived of that exposure, you start to really be at a disadvantage from everybody else on multiple levels, right? Not just now you don't know how to decode, but you miss out on years of background knowledge, years of opportunities, even, you know, dyslexics are often terrible spellers. And so even just having that inhibition of like, well, I'm not going to share my writing. I'm not going to write on the board. Like my partner is dyslexic and he was a high school English teacher. And even as a high school English teacher, it was like, "Eh, I don't think I'm going to write this word on the board because I don't know how to spell it. Mm. You know, spelling is not linked to intelligence at all, but we don't know that. I mean, all of us, if someone sends us an email full of typos, we automatically assume they're not as intelligent as if they send us a perfectly proofread email, right? So it's a lot about awareness, both 
both for dyslexic individuals and also for non-dyslexic individuals. You know, I'm working with some employers right now, helping to expand awareness of like, you could have an amazing employee who just is a terrible speller. And if you squash their ability just because they're a terrible speller, like you're going to miss out on the superpowers that they bring to your company. So instead of like assuming that they're not intelligent because they're a terrible speller, just make them use Grammarly on all their emails and have someone proofread their stuff and then let them bring their superpower to the table. So Kate, this is fascinating and so helpful, I think, to so many people. As we wrap up, do you have any words of wisdom or any tips or advice for parents who are, you know, right now concerned about their their child's reading? Yes. The good news is that there's a lot more out there than there was even 10 years ago. Um, I, I tell my students all the time, it's the best generation to have dyslexia because one, we have technology. So now you can use Grammarly and now you can access audiobooks to be able to read, like use your ears to read while you catch up with your ability to decode independently. And for parents as well, there's way more resources out there now than there was before. So we have a social media account, Redwood Literacy. We're on Instagram. We post daily tips for parents, for educators. We share lots of resources. That's a great place to start if you're just kind of learning, starting this journey. The Yale Center for Dyslexia and Creativity is also an awesome resource for individuals with dyslexia and for parents and for educators. One of my favorite books on dyslexia is Overcoming Dyslexia by Dr. Sally Shaywitz. It's a bit of a read, but if you think your child might have dyslexia, I encourage you to read it because I will tell you this, you are going to have to advocate for your child to get them what they need and nobody is going to advocate better than you will. And so equip yourself with the knowledge and with the language and the ability to ask directly for what you need your child's school to do because you can't assume that the school is the expert or that the teacher is the expert because like I said, there's still a pretty big disconnect in educator awareness and and education around dyslexia. And so I would take it upon yourself to, to recognize you're probably going to have to be the one to bring the knowledge to your school. But if you equip yourself with that deep understanding of what's actually happening and equip yourself with the knowledge of what type of intervention your child needs, which I'll tell you, it's structured literacy intervention, but you can read about it more in Dr. Shaywitz's book. You're going to be really empowered to have those conversations. I also highly recommend you join a parent group because it can be a long journey and it can be really exhausting. It can be frustrating. There are lots of great groups on Facebook. Once we're back in person, there are groups that, you know, are local to different communities that you can join. So reach out to fellow parents because again, this is not an uncommon struggle. We're talking 20% of kids have this type of brain is what recent research is showing. So find your people, find the other parents who are having these similar struggles, bring it up in conversations at the library group, wherever you're interacting with other parents of your child's age range, because I guarantee you're going to find somebody else who's like, oh yeah, my kid's really struggling with this too. And you can start those conversations, really build a community around each other. Those are fantastic tips. Thank you. Kate, it's been such a pleasure talking to you today. I've, I've learned so much Me too. about reading and about dyslexia and about how to help readers today. So I, I really appreciate it. Thank you for joining us. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I really appreciate this platform because I love talking about it and love building awareness around it. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Raising Curious Learners. Special thanks to our guests this week, Kate Ferriante, CEO of Redwood Literacy and Certified Learning Behavior Specialist, for teaching us about the ways parents and teachers can better support students with reading challenges and dyslexia. You can find out more about Redwood Literacy on their website, redwoodliteracy.com, or their social media 
at Redwood Literacy. I'm Elizabeth Romanski, and my co-host, as always, is Anne Gadzikowski. Our audio engineer and editor for this program is Emily Goldstein. If by chance you hear a new co-star in the background, that is my brand new puppy, Nolly, and she's just saying hi, so sorry about that. If you like this episode, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review, and share with your friends. This episode is copyrighted by Encyclopedia Britannica Incorporated. All rights reserved.